Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. Another installment of the Talent Tank. With us today, Jesse Haynes. Jesse, how are you? Pretty good. How are you? Man, well, better than you. I mean, you uh, you actually have some wins in your recent history and some losses in your recent history. Wins being you're the current 4600 King of the Hammers champion. Congrats. Thank you. It's a good way to start off the year. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then between there and where we're at today, you caught a, uh, a flying case of the COVID. Yep. Yep. And so you're kind of, you're kind of in recovery. Yeah. Trying to, it's weird. It's, uh, well, the world in general is a little weird right now oh, and flying weird, flipping so weird. right as this all was getting crazy, I got sick it's weird. Like it's hard to say how long it lasted. Cause I still have some, yeah, you're still coughing. You're still breathing a yeah. little heavy too. Yeah. Coughing. And then I have like, I'll wake up and my mouth is super dry. That is just, you know, something out of the ordinary that, you know, it's nothing that I'm uh, struggling with or anything like that, but it's stuff that you notice that, you know, you're not totally back to normal. Right. Well, so we had planned this interview and I'd sent you an interview case and then you got sick. And so we delayed a little bit and I fit in, you know, Ian Johnson in front of you, in front of your interview, slid him in to give you a little bit more time because you were actually having trouble in conversation, just holding, keeping your breath going. Well, it was more, more of the coughing. I would, I had a couple of people call and want to talk and I talked to him for 20 minutes and then I just start coughing really bad. And it's like, I, I probably shouldn't, uh spend spend a couple hours having conversations for a lot of us in off-road you were kind of the first one we you kind of were the first person to make it real for at least definitely for me you were the first person to make it real you're the first person that it hit, hit close to home because we were talking or texting on somewhat regular basis kind of setting this up and then you came out with hey i've i've got it i was like what whoa because oh, yeah. up to that point it felt like it was you know, it was on other continents. It wasn't an American problem. And now it really is an American problem. A lot of naysayers, right? Yeah. And you know, one of the things, probably the most interesting thing that came out of posting about it on Facebook was how many people said that they think they already had it. And without a doubt, I mean, uh, there was a lot of people that flew to King of the Hammers, traveled there, and you get people from all over the world coming to that event. And People even talking about possibly getting it at SEMA, which it's hard hard to say if it. Who knows it when it really started? But uh, yeah, there was definitely quite a few people saying they think they had it in December or January, and I mean, I think it's a realistic possibility that that was the case. You and I had talked, but did you figure out where you kind of think you got it from? You had said you thought maybe your ophthalmologist you had gone in for some eye test or something. Is that kind of what you're still on? Yeah, potentially. I really didn't. I never contacted them to really like look into it, but I had laser eye surgery and I was there three times that week, basically the week before I got sick. And, uh, you know, each time you're putting your face in the eye exam machine 
and you've got your face in there for maybe five minutes or whatever. Well, they say it can last on surfaces for up to three days. And so who knows? I didn't know they wipe that off, but you know, this stuff's apparently really resilient to that. Yeah. Yeah. I guarantee they're not wiping it off well enough that they would want to stick their face in there if they thought someone was contagious. Right. And not now. I mean, the, the world has changed. I mean, that was, you know, just three weeks ago or four weeks ago now, how radically different the world is today. So yeah, what was crazy about that was the week I got sick. I think it was, that was the day that I really got sick. I had another eye doctor appointment and they had little masks up at the front desk. And it said, if you're coughing, make sure you wear a mask. And I, I had just started kind of coughing and I was like, I'm going to, I guess I'll put one on. And the guy there was like, oh, it's what, it's not really a big deal. I mean, you don't have to, if you don't want to. And I thought, eh, I probably should. I, you know, seemed like the responsible thing to do. And, you know, that was the day that I actually got sick. So things have changed a lot in general. People are taking it more seriously now. Yeah, I, I went to the grocery store today and uh, I came home from that and talking to my wife about how crazy it was. You know, we've been to the grocery store multiple times since this has gone on, but the whole, how much everything's changed. In the past, if you walked into a grocery store, and you know, I'm, I'm in Texas, so I actually do concealed carry a firearm almost all the time. You know, you have a one, a sidearm on, but then two, I have a bandana on, you know, like I'm going to like rob a stagecoach here. Right. They have policemen at the front door and the the exit door. They've made the grocery store to be like one in, one out. You know, they've made one side an entrance and one side an exit. You enter on the produce side and you exit on the pharmacy side which kind of makes sense anyway, but they've made it now into a flow. And I'm telling my wife, I'm like, yeah, you know, a month ago, if you'd walked into anywhere with a bandana over your face and they would definitely pull you aside, you get frisked. They'd be like, why do you have this gun? You know? Yeah. And I mean, it's hard to say where we're going. I mean, it was like a month ago, not even that a friend of mine said he was wearing a mask at the grocery store and some, Woman started bitching him out. He said, I didn't even stick around long enough to figure out what she was saying. But, you know, it was out of the ordinary somewhat to actually be wearing a mask in public. And like, are we headed to the point where if you're not wearing a mask in public, someone's going to come up to you and uh, tell you you're being responsible. And yeah, it's my trip to the grocery store today was that there was people there that did not have masks on, but they were definitely the minority. I was at. Home Depot, and it was there weren't that many people with masks, but there was definitely a handful. And you know, we look back, you know, if you travel internationally or anytime you're on an airplane, you see the Asian people that have masks on. And I'm willing to bet most of us thought it always thought this was silly. Yes, yes, I'm with you. Now you're like, mm, maybe it wasn't that silly, but I don't know. I mean, who knows? Chaos, crazy times we're living in. Well. Hey, let's jump into this interview. Like I said, you, you, you just came off a win. You won 40, 4,600 class. You were like about, I want to say you finished 20th in the EMC, but that was first in 4,600. I think so. Something yeah. like that. You're the owner, the sole proprietor of uh, Jesse Haynes Fabrication. Going strong. You're coming up on a decade there, right? Eight years. Eight years. Super crawl promoter. I, I don't know if I want to call you the godfather of crawling, but you've you've certainly reinvigorated it over the last few years. You're, you've single-handedly brought crawling back in vogue. Yeah, I mean, I've heard people say that, and I I don't know. I don't try to take 
too much credit for it because it's obviously a, a big effort between a lot of people. But it takes that one person just being a catalyst that the the glue, so to speak, to kind of kind of get all the right players in the right place and doing the right things. And you've kind of done a good job about hurting cats there. I can tell you about that. When I lived on the East Coast, rock crawling was big at that time, 2003 to seven, basically. And rock crawling was still going pretty strong in 2007. Man, we had a lot of good times. There was a, so many good competitors back then on the East Coast. I mean, when I say that there was tons of good competitors, I don't just mean like good for the East Coast. I mean, the guys on the East Coast were as good as anyone in the country. It depended on kind of the terrain we were competing on. Like some of the guys on the East Coast, if they went out West, didn't do as well. The events were just a little different. The courses were different. The terrain was different. But, you know, we had a couple times the Supercrawl champions were East Coast guys like Randy Torbett and Ken Shoup. So I would talk to uh, some of the guys like Matt Dees was one that I remember in particular. I don't know if you know Matt at all, but Matt was a great competitor. You know, we'd have conversations about, man, those were awesome times. And what a bummer it is that it's, you know, dying off and it's not like that anymore. And doesn't seem like it's ever going to be like that again. And you kind of get to the point where it's like, okay, we can talk about how much it sucks that it's over or try and do something about about changing that. And so that was like 13, 14 was when I kind of told myself like, you know what, for me, it wasn't just about, well, we had some good times and I want to keep doing it because, you know, it was fun. It was also, this is kind of what I do for a living, building rock crawling stuff. If it dies off, you know, it's, it's kind of my career. Self-defeating, right? Yeah. So I just said, you know, we got to try and bring this back and make this happen again. And there was definitely a, a lot of factors that came into play. You know, the economy started getting better. And uh, there was even things like I met Kevin Carroll in 2015 from Red Dot Engineering. Yeah. And it's sad to lose him this past year. Yeah. I mean, it's terrible. I think it was last June. Is it? Is plane it almost crash. Year? Yeah, that plane crashed outside of Moab. Yeah. Man. That was crazy to hear about. But yeah, I hate to say it, but I, a lot of the guys that knew Kevin weren't shocked that something like that happened because he's so crazy. Like as far as pushing the limits of everything he did, I mean, it doesn't take away from how tragic it was, but a lot of guys were like, well, yeah, I can, I can see that happening because if you saw the way the guy rock crawled or, (laughs) or anything, I mean, he, he was nuts. Like it was full throttle all the way. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I like to think that I, I like going out there and doing, doing crazy stuff too, but some of the stuff that he was willing to do, he's like, man, this is cool. Driving off this huge drop off over here. I'm like, eh, I don't really need to do that. He's like, Oh, come on. And you're like, nah, maybe I'll drive up some crazy stuff or whatever, but I don't need to just, for the heck of it, go off some insane drop off. But he was pretty awesome as far as that goes. Like no one was more fun to trail ride with because he was he loved it. He loved the extreme stuff. He, he, and he definitely put together a lot of really badass cars. Yeah. And that's where I was getting at. It was Kevin. I mean, I f- almost feel like single handedly 
he kind of started something that definitely helped move the sport forward. It was like, well, 2000, I think it was 15. He invited a handful of people to come do this uh, trail run at Black Flag at Area BFE. Crawl Magazine and everything was there. He invited me and Tracy Jordan. Some people kind of think it was a bit of a setup. Those guys were out there basically practicing the trail before this trail run. And me and Tracy got our asses handed to us that day. You know, a big part of it was our cars couldn't hang on that trail. Yeah, I never made it. I ended up having some mechanical issues. I think Tracy broke something earlier in the day, and then he had to winch a couple times. And But what it showed was, you know, that their cars were an evolution of the sport in a way because they were going places that a regular comp buggy couldn't go. It changed my thinking for sure as far as building cars, and it was like the start of the extreme trail wheeling, which before it was like, you know, you had most trail wheelers had a two-seat buggy, no rear steer, and, you know, that was hardcore. Then all of a sudden it was like you needed 42s and rear steer, and, you know, a lot of people started going that direction of more extreme stuff and finding more extreme trails. And you can even say, you know, stuff like the start of trail hero and trail breaker also helped progress that kind of extreme trail wheeling. What car was uh, Tracy Jordan in? Was he there in his rock bug? Yeah. So he had already sold it, but he borrowed it back from the guy that owned it. So I was driving pokey, my pro mod buggy on 40 inch tires and, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I didn't have rear steer. All those guys had rear steer. At that point, I was like, yeah, I got to build another car with rear steer. So you're also involved with LaserNet racing with Cody Wagner. You guys have done a couple crawlers together. You did Pretty Penny. Yeah. Which we all know that car as having the uh, the, the, the copper wheels. Right. Insane. And just in, Cody's insane. And then now, have you built some twins to that car or variations or... Kind of. Let's finish what we were talking about with uh, <laughs> with, with COVID. Then we're going to go into you. And then uh, we'll lump all this, uh, the build and the tech side stuff and the comp stuff actually into the real sections. I love tangents and I got off on one and I got you off on one. And sorry, listeners, you guys were along for the ride. You know, that's how we roll here. So w- while you were sick and down, your shop is at your house and you've got at least one employee. You have two, something like that. And then you've kind of had to shut down here in the, in the interim. How's that? kind of affecting timelines and timetables and timeframes and your family and their family. As you can imagine, it's, I mean, it's hard to say that there's ever like great timing to get sick for 10 days, but wasn't the best timing. Well, in some ways it could have been worse, but we're getting ready to move. We just built a house. It's about an hour away and we're getting ready to move there in a week or 10 days now. And so there was stuff I wanted to work on and try and get done before I moved that you know, it's kind of screwed up the the timing for all that. Yeah, I do have some employees that are eh, part time or full time. <laughs> no one has a set schedule, but uh, yeah, no one really came in for about a week or so. So yeah, not a lot got done. And also, it's it's tough for people right now because some of them their kids aren't in school and they got to stay home. And it's yeah, it hasn't been a lot of progress happening in the last couple weeks. Have you noticed any drop off in any of your like part deliveries and any of your, you know, your suppliers? 
Not necessarily. RCVs closed. And that hasn't been a real big issue. I did have one guy that was ready to order some stuff and they're closed. But, you know, I think for the most part, everyone else I deal with is still open. And so, I mean, that helps us keep going for sure. So you yourself, you're from Michigan. I know you went to work at the Badlands for a little while. And then you ended up in Reno where you're at today or you're outside of Reno. Yeah, Sparks. So, And the first time I remember you, I remember Top Truck Challenge and you know, when they send it out, right? Back in the magazine era, right? We would get our, uh, our four-wheeler, our Peterson's four-wheel drive, and it would have all the competitors in there. And you had this huge, huge, uh, were they on 44-inch Swampers? Boggers, yeah. Boggers, boggers. Bright orange Toyota. That was my first kind of recollection of you. and But I kind of knew you uh, just being on Pirate. Everyone was on Pirate in that era. And then I bought my first buggy came from Mike Koval, who was a Michigan guy. And you knew him some form or fashion. And when he went to sell me that buggy, he needed tires for it. And so he runs to you and got some 37-inch treps for it. They were probably 3.8s to half used they there wasn't a whole lot left so he like regrooved them in between the lugs with uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then that's what i ended up with and i man they were really good that was a really good hooking up tire and then i'm stupid i went and got 39 inch reds and then that was all downhill from there on that car <laughs> <laughs> that car should have never had 39s on it but um yeah man so that was really my first interaction with the Jesse Haynes was I ended up with this buggy that had your tires on it. Yeah. And then we didn't actually officially meet until I met you in 2009 at a pit stop on the, uh, Vegas Torino. best in the desert. Yeah. Be, uh, Vegas yeah. Torino. That's right. And I can't remember. It was one of the last pit stops, like Hawthorne maybe. And we were standing, we were all kind of standing in a circle discussing yeah. on where our car was because it was Jeff Noel and rj brown were in it and we were waiting and waiting it turned out they were on the back side of a mountain ridge they'd broken down they got oh, through there yeah yeah and, yeah and uh the, the only thing that broke up our conversation was best in the desert came over the radio and asked for the you know the pit crew of the 4471 and basically gave us a gps coordinate on where our car was and to get there it was like well as the crow flies, they were like five miles away. But as far as getting to them, it was an like an hour drive south and an hour drive back north. And I think we finally got them back to that night stop at, oh, God, it was like 2 in the morning or something. It was kind of crazy. But that was the first time I yeah, ran into you, just randomly. I think it was Hawthorne because um, we spent the night in Hawthorne. I didn't originally go down to that race. I stayed at the shop and then basically said, if you guys need anything, let me know. And that was like the three day race or something. Yeah. And it was actually a really cool format, but yeah, I, I can't remember at some point I ended up driving down and helping out. I can't remember what the deal was. It was something about someone wrecked the Torchmate truck. Oh yeah. 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 And, uh, I ended up staying up all night. Me and maybe Nick Sosha stayed up all night fixing the truck, which I didn't have anything to do the next day, so it wasn't a huge deal. You know, it's easy for the crew guys to stay up all night versus the guy that's got drive or something. You know, so well, it was like the A pillar was folded in on it, right? Wasn't that yeah. what it is? So the driver's bar was folded way down, and to drive it, you had to like you could drive, but you had to your your head was cocked over, totally not right. safe. And you guys, I think, fixed it that night. 
So back in Michigan, when you're growing up, at what point did, I mean, were you into sports as a kid? I think you told me, and this is where I start getting in trouble when I'm doing interviews because the, the way it's going, I've got so many kind of going in an order. <laughs> right. If it, And all of a sudden I get you confused. And I feel like you are also into ice hockey like Eric right. Miller was. Is that right? Yeah. And we've talked about, like Eric and I have talked about that a little bit before. Like we're aware of the fact that we both played hockey. I don't know how seriously involved Eric was in it. I know he played a decent amount growing up. But yeah, when I was a kid, I started at six and which is it was kind of like the standard age where most kids start because that's like when the organized hockey starts at at six or whatever so yeah i started then and i mean i played until basically played organized hockey until i was like 24 yeah it was definitely a big part of my life when i was growing up i was a little a little different as far as how most most kids are growing up i guess like in high school, I mean, I never went to parties or drank or, you know, hung out with my friends all the time or whatever. I mean, I was like so focused on playing hockey that that was my big thing for sure. What's your story? How did you get into wheeling at all when you were so focused on ice hockey? So I had always been into, I don't know, playing with cars and building stuff and playing with Legos when I was a little kid. And I remember... I don't know how old I was, but, you know, when I was really young, all of our Legos and stuff were in the basement and I would just go down there by myself and play. I bet there was times where I would go down there for, you know, a couple hours, two or three hours. And my mom would have to come down there like, is everything okay? You know, you still down here? Because, you know, I was just so focused on what I was doing and the stuff I was playing with. And in it, you know, eventually as you get older, you start getting remote control cars and actual RC kits and building cars. And, you know, I was super into that stuff too. And even started racing RC cars. There was a couple of times where we went to races that were a couple hours from my house. And it was a good hobby for me as a kid. Did you come back from stuff like that and be like, okay, this is what I need to do to make my RC car faster or better or were you cutting stuff off of it or adding stuff to it? Oh, yeah. There, I remember they had these uh, indoor races at a – there was like a gym by my house, like at a elementary school. And it was a carpeted gym. I'm sure you remember like carpeted gyms where like the basketball court was all carpeted, but it was like that super low-profile stuff. Yeah, like a, the couple I remember, they were churches. Uh, it was a church, yeah. Oh, there, there yeah. we go. <laughs> Connected yeah. dots. So right? anyway, they would, they would set up like – pvc pipe that was the the borderline of the course you know what i mean yeah like sometimes it's just an oval so i bought like uh i got for christmas this can't remember what it was called like a stampede or something oh uh, traxxas sledgehammer so i got this thing it's like a monster truck and i get it and i mean it was really cool and i took it there to race it and it was horrible because they were like fast little cars and this thing is like a monster truck like Right. And it wasn't so much the fact that it was slow, but I mean, it was just way too tall. The center of gravity and everything was way too high. Tires were too big. And I remember like I changed so much stuff on it, like lowered it a ton, got these super low profile tires and just totally converted it and basically into a a race truck and actually did all that stuff and won a race. And it was like looking back, that was kind of the hook, right? The start of me getting into that kind of stuff because 
you know, the average kid would probably have just drove his truck around and not done well. And, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I just looked at it and tried to figure out a way to, to make it better what I had. None of that is surprising to me. And then to find out, you know, that you ended up going to, you went to college, you went to Ferris State, but to find out that you have a BS in automotive engineering technology makes complete sense to me. Like, like you're one of the guys who I know who they had an idea, they went to college for exactly one thing, and then they still use it and utilize it today. You know, some people don't even use their degree immediately on day one out of college. And it seems like you have continuously built step by step by step into where your business is today. Is that about right? Some of the stuff, I don't know why it took me so long to get get involved in it. But when I was a senior in high school, I signed up for an uh, AutoCAD class, computer-aided drafting class. Uh, I think all we used was AutoCAD at the time, but I loved it. Like, you know, back then, they don't, in, you're in high school. They don't really care too much about the curriculum. They just want you to, like, get familiar with the program. And I would just sit there and draw, like, trucks and race cars and all kinds of stuff and AutoCAD. And I, I thought it was really cool. Thought maybe it was a career I wanted to go into. So I went to a community college for a little bit, taking computer-aided drafting stuff, technical drafting. Some of it was on, you know, actual drawing on the, on the board, drafting board. And then I went to Ferris State. And at Ferris State, I was signed up for the tech drafting and tool design program. One of my roommates was in the automotive program and where I would park every day, I would walk through the automotive building and every day I'd walk through there and I was like, man, this stuff is super cool. This looks way more interesting than what I'm doing. So I started like thinking maybe, maybe I want to do that. Right. And I remember towards the end of my school year with the tech drafting program, we went on a field trip and basically, you know, this field trip's trying to show you, you know, this is the kind of job you're going to get when you graduate. You This this is the kind of stuff you're going to be doing. And I looked at this and I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> I <laughs> right? don't want to do this because I liked the drawing aspect of it just from designing cars and whatnot. I didn't want to, I didn't want to just sit at a desk and, uh, you know, someone hands you something and say, draw this. So you want to be out there making it right. Put right. your hands on it front to back. Yeah. At that point, I said, yep, no, I'm changing majors, which, you know, that that year, it was very valuable stuff that I learned still, even though it seemed like a waste of time. There was a lot of cool stuff that I learned. And so when I was in college, I actually took some welding classes. I took some machining classes. So I took a machining processes class that was using a mill and using a lathe. And I really liked it. And then when I was a senior, I found out that our assistant hockey coach was a, uh, one of the lab instructors for the machining class. And he told me, he's like, Hey, if you want to take, uh, this machining class, you know, you can just sign up to be a lab assistant and you can just come in and basically just use the, uh, use the shop during the lab. And I'm like, really? And so I don't know what it was like, two credits or something. I signed up and I mean, I was literally going in there. You (laughs) sounds bad. I was going in there using shop materials and I was doing stuff like machining steering arms and stuff. And I was even selling them like advertising them and selling them the stuff that I was making in shop class. But it was good experience. Um, learn how to do that stuff. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Since 2007, 
Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a custom splice solution. Now, back to the show. When I went from college and a couple months later, started at the Badlands, just coincidentally, I mean, worked out awesome that I went to work this shop that had, you know, a full machine shop. We had, I mean, we had two lathes, two mills, vertical mill, horizontal mill. Like we had everything there that was troy meyer's shop there at badlands it's like well it's badlands off-road park but badlands machine shop was a thing and then attica indiana i know a lot a lot of competitors and definitely rec wheelers have been there on on some form or fashion at some time in my life but how did you go from ferris down to uh attica indiana basically when i was in a senior in college i had decided that i wanted to work at an off-road shop obviously like having some type of engineering degree doesn't necessarily translate over into working at an off-road shop, but I knew it was what I wanted to do. So I remember going through like four-wheeler and four-wheeler off-road magazines and looking through the back of the magazine and looking online. And I was trying to find contacts for literally like any off-road shop in the country, especially like places that were advertising magazines, places like Avalanche Engineering or whoever else, you know, contacting all those places, trying to get a job somewhere. And I remember I had contacted the Badlands and Troy wrote me back and said, because this was a few months before I graduated. And he said, when you're getting closer to when you're graduating, hit me up again and I'll see if, uh, see what we can do. Well, had you met Troy before then? No, I'd never been down there. No. So, you know, I didn't, wasn't holding my breath as far as that goes. Cause I mean, who knows if that was going to actually work out, but I graduated, went back home, went to work as a mechanic for a while, while I was looking for a job. And then it was probably, well, yeah, it was, uh, sometime in June, Troy contacted me. I think he left a message on my, uh, answering machine and said, Hey, if you're still interested give me a call. Maybe we can meet up and see if it'd work out. And I remember calling and I'd be like, I, I can, uh, I can start, uh, next weekend. I can, I can be down there this weekend and I can start now. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, uh, how about you just come down here and you know, meet, let's meet and see if this is going to work out. What I ended up doing and it's part of why I got the job. So I took my willies back then, my, 
my tow rig was like a junky 83 long box one ton chevy truck with a with a 454 in it and i mean driving it six hours was like you know probably iffy but and just the fuel cost uh, the fuel cost alone right right? yeah and so i loaded up my willies which i had basically just rebuilt at that time i mean looking back i mean it was wasn't that great (laughs) and probably didn't work very well either but i took that down there you know took it down to the badlands met up with them even went out wheeling a little bit saw what they had going on at the shop and they offered me a job talking to Troy about it later, the fact that I brought my rig down there was, you know, a big factor in why they hired me because they could look at my work and see, well, look, this guy did this. And even though this isn't, this isn't the best, maybe this quality is not up to par. It shows a start. It does. And like a lot of guys that are interested in getting into this stuff, I don't think they understand that there's tons of guys that, start these projects or do you know a little bit of a project hey i put rock sliders on this rig or whatever but regardless of the i mean to some extent regardless of the quality if you can start from scratch and put something together and actually finish it it definitely shows that you've got you know the passion and the motivation because so many people start projects and get overwhelmed and realize it's way harder than it they thought it was going to be way more work than they thought it was going to be. And they just give up on it. So. Oh, absolutely. Like you, you hit it. I mean, finish. That's the key word. Like finish. I, I have a shop full of projects. I haven't finished shop full, but, <laughs> but I've, I've ton of, you know, have also cranked out a ton of projects because there was that, well, like that passion stayed there or that wherewithal for that individual item stayed right. through the course of it. And then some stuff I'll start because it seemed like a good idea. And then I'm like, you know, a few weeks in or a few weekends and I'm like, Eh, it's, it's crap. Lose motivation. You walk away from it. And then, well, yeah. there you go. I mean, we saw it, you know, when I worked at the Badlands for four and a half years, you'd see guys come in, apply and want to work there. And, you know, a lot, most of them didn't work out. And the thing is like the thought of going to a shop and building rock crawling buggies all the time or ultra four cars or whatever, that sounds so cool. Sounds sexy as can be. Right. I mean, it sounds like you'd be going to work every day thinking, man, this is awesome. And it's not always awesome. I mean, it's work. I will say when I started at the Badlands, I mean, I loved every day of work, you know, for quite a while. And I moved there. I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anyone. And basically the only thing I did is I went to work and I went rock crawling by myself a lot of times after work because I don't know, I, I'm not that social of a person that I can move somewhere and just make a bunch of friends and hang out with them. So I was only making, I think I started at like 1250 an hour or something, you know, with your four year engineering degree and you start at 1250 an hour. I didn't care. I was like, I, I don't, whatever I'll make it work. And but some of that going out after working, you know, going and crawling and running around the badlands solo, that helps you work out a lot of things in your head. Oh, yeah. Problem solving uh, about your day, how your day went. So there's some reflecting. There's there's a lot of personal care that happens solo like that. There was definitely something. I don't know how you describe it. It was definitely a peaceful thing to, you know, it's a 600 acre park. 
and just have the whole place to yourself. It was cool. It was kept me content for quite a while being there. Through 2007, right? Yeah. You came down to Spring, Texas for... Uh, we Rock Nationals. We Rock Nationals there just outside Houston. And that was, for me, that was the first rock carling event I'd seen real life in person. And so you came to that, but then from there, you went straight to Reno? Yeah, Carson City is where Schaefer's Off-Road was. And basically... Was he in Mound House yet? No, just down the road. I mean, that's like, whatever it is, like... Yeah, five miles away or something. It's not. I don't want. I, I don't want to get too far ahead. You built a bunch of cool stuff there with Troy, and you know we lost Troy. Did we lose him last year too? No, two years ago. It seems. It seems really recent. Yes, it's been two years. Yeah. Either there's something in the water, or we are getting old. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's for sure. But yeah, I don't want to get too far ahead. But I know before. You you were in a, you were in the mud runs. You were a mud womper. That's when we talking about your toy. You had boggers on it. Right. <laughs> Is that just something like it feels like there's two different kinds of people out in Michigan. Uh, they're either into sand dunes and going to uh, the, the yeah. Silver Lake, Silver Lake, yep. or they're into mud womping. Yeah. Well, you don't have a lot of options. I tell people, you know, uh, because on the on the West Coast, you don't you don't realize what it's like on the East coast. So by the way, when I was like 17, I think I got a ticket from, they call it the DNR in Michigan department of natural resources, which is like the BLM most places in the country. And we're out wheeling, climbing on these sand hills. We don't know where we're at or where we're going or whatever. We'd been driving all over. We get pulled over, you know, I'm freaking out like basically like police lights and, they uh, told us they're like, you guys are under arrest for operating a motor vehicle in a restricted area or something. I was like, am I going to jail? Like, no, no, you. I'm like, <laughs> I was scared out of my mind. But uh, you know, we didn't even know we were in a restricted area. But anyway, the rules in Michigan were basically unless a trail is marked open, it's considered closed and. The whole time I lived there, I only saw signs that said marked open trail a handful of times. I mean, everything's closed. And unless you're like on a dirt road and, you know, being teenagers, I mean, we're you do teenage like, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Total well, idiots. And we do teenage stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, we would look for like, if it rained, we were like super excited because we go find mud somewhere. You know what I mean? And Sometimes it would be, oh, we know these dirt roads that will flood when uh, when it rains. And you'd go out on these dirt roads that were potentially someone's road to get to their house. And you're just like mudding the hell out of it, <laughs> you know, tearing it up. But we didn't have a lot of options. There weren't like hills. There weren't there wasn't anything. So, I mean, in northern Michigan, like four wheeling was for the most part, it was going mudding. Right. So when you were at the Badlands, though, my recollection of some chassis that, that you guys had, you guys made the Wasp, competed against a bunch of Wasp chassis in XRA. Yeah. But the one that sticks out in my head, and you had to correct the name for me in the notes I sent you, I called the thing a, a, a Tomahawk, but you, you yeah. said, it, yeah, I knew it was Indian something. It was the Apache. Yeah. And that thing was so damn ugly, and the proportions <laughs> were so terrible. 
Yeah. But the thing that struck me, and that was really where I remember you, and you know, Dave Cole would be like, "Why I don't remember? I don't know how you keep up with these terrible, innate little b facts that you remember." Right. But that thing you had, you had longitudinally mounted a transmission, uh, uh, an engine. I don't remember what it was. Maybe a VTEC. I feel like it was a Saturn though. No, it was a uh, it was an LS one. Seriously, and then you. Yeah, LS1. And then the transmission was like a power glide to a nine inch center section. And then the nine inch center section was the transfer case. Yeah. So this stuff, there was this guy, he's still around. His name's Jerry Beck. We had built a, a buggy for him, one of the original Wasp buggies with a 4BT because he was into truck pulling and the diesel stuff. He's got a like a construction business on some heavy equipment, you know, a typical like diesel guy. Right. So I started getting to know Jerry and we went to an event and he saw this guy in Pennsylvania had a transaxle buggy. And so Jerry saw that and thought it was pretty cool. And we were driving home from Pennsylvania, 12 hour drive. And we start talking about it. I don't remember what we were talking about. We we're talking about that transaxle buggy. Well, the next day he calls me, and I mean, he came up with all this stuff. So most people would have never have heard of this before, but he's telling me about this transmission. Oh man. I think it's called a turbo hydro 425 425. Yeah. Yeah. Out of a uh, Cadillac Eldorado. Tornados. Yeah. yeah so they, they Eldorado just, and Tornado. That's right. He's Eldorados. Telling me all about this transaxle. And I'm like, not what? He's like, I'll bring one in and show you. And it had uh, it had a diff in it. Those things are crazy. Like and heavy. So what well, they put them in motorhomes too. And they were really good. I mean, they were set up. They were behind, uh, you know, either a four seventy two or a five hundred cubic right. inch motor. So they yeah. were set up for torque. Right. Like it had a diff on it that had a ring and pinion that was like dana 60 size and weighed three hundred pounds. It was a. It was basically a turbo hydro four hundred with a. Yep integral chain. diff hanging off the back of it yeah or chain drive yes that went from the converter to the i mean the thing is super cool so he had an idea to use one of those and i thought no way and then he brought it in i looked at it i'm like okay and one thing led to another next thing you know he's like sending a crate uh ls1 to the shop and uh you know we're building this thing. And I mean, it was such a cool project. It, it was one that I was almost did a hundred percent myself. And what some people don't remember or don't know about Badlands is when I was working there, I get a lot of credit for the stuff that was built there. But when I started, there was a guy named Rob Brown that it was Troy's uh, nephew. And that guy had designed most of those chassis. So it, you know, it's kind of weird. There was times where, and I'll be honest, he didn't work very well with others. So a lot of the times that we were there, there was projects that it was like either Rob was 100% doing the whole car himself. And maybe in the other side of the shop, I was doing a car 100% myself. So and that Apache was something that I was working on myself. It, it, it kind of had the configuration of uh, like one of those Econoline pickups, like the little van pick, like like you sat. Right. Like, right. The, the, like the driver's seat. Was in your front feet of the were over the front axle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you like your butt was over the top of the front diff, and then the motor was left to right behind you. The, the motor didn't sit lengthwise in the chassis; it sat sideways, right. side to side. And yeah. then it had offset diffs 
offset to the driver's side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember this thing. Yeah, that it was crazy, the tech on it, but, God, it was ugly. Did, did it ever end up being wheeled? Did it climb worth the shit? I mean. Jerry's one of those guys that seems to lose interest in stuff pretty quick. And it debuted, and he had never competed before, and he went to a U-Rock event that, you know, there's quite a few good guys there. I don't remember how many teams there were at the event, but, man, I think he got, like, fifth or something. I mean, he did really well, and he only ever competed in, like, three or four events, and I don't know. He just lost interest, and, I mean, it's kind of a shame, like, the car – got sold and then it got parted out and then partially parted out and then it got sold again and parted out even more. And then it's like, then I like saw the chassis just by itself for sale a few years ago. And it's like, what's someone going to do with just the chassis? It had like the most unconventional drivetrain ever, but that car, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, how things have gone with pirate. Like, I mean, it's hard to go back and look at a, a thread on pirate. Yeah. The pictures are all gone and the links are all gone. And there might be some pictures still there, but not many. Um, you can find a handful of pictures of it and whether you think the car is ugly or whether it worked or not, like uh, most people can appreciate, like there was some really cool stuff. So instead of using the factory diff, cause if we use the factory diff, you would just basically have to weld the spider gears and then it would be locked in four wheel drive all the time. We put, we built an ARB or we built a Ford nine inch with an ARB in it and used that. So adapted the back of the transmission to the input of the nine inch, use that as an ARB. So that way you could disconnect the front. Like when you went to open diff, then that was genius. It works surprisingly well. Like we had to put these crazy long handles on the cutting brakes to get it to actually, you know, lock up the rear or lock up the front. But it worked really well. And it was cool that you could leave it in technically like all wheel drive. You know what I mean? Like where you could leave that diff open and you could be going in all wheel drive and then just pull the cutting brake and then front dig without having to flip it on or off. It was a cool car. It was something that I'm still proud of because. Oh, you should be. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much work and something that people, you know, don't know about how the Badlands operated. I joke that it was a, uh, a nonprofit organization like the, the shop was. I'm sure there's some stuff we did that made money. But the park made so much money that Troy's tax guy was probably like, uh, is there any way you can lose a bunch of money um, somehow? And <laughs> like, I think that's why we had the shop, because, I mean, uh, that was the loser, right? That car, because that guy was, you know, a friend of Troy's, too. I can't remember what we charged him for labor, but it had to be close to what I was getting paid. You know what I mean? But like, we're not making money on any of that stuff. So how did you first get involved in crawling? Who asked you to, to start spotting for them? How did you make that foyer into traveling around the country on the traveling circus of, of we rock, you rock. It was pretty crazy how it happened because it happened really fast from the time that I got to the badlands. Basically they had told me that there was a, e-rock event this is the this was 2003 was the last year of e-rock there was an e-rock event coming up at the badlands and you know i was super excited to go watch well 
I went downtown for where they were doing the tech and registration. And there was this guy, not many people would remember him, but someone out there does. There was this guy named Mike Hope that ran the concession stand in the lower parking lot at the Badlands for quite a while. They called him Hot Dog Mike. <laughs> and Hot Dog Mike had built his own buggy and he was kinda of, he was kind of nuts. But Hot Dog Mike was at the uh tech and registration and I had maybe talked to the guy once. I had only been at the Badlands a week. And he says, Hey man, uh you want a spot for me this weekend? Cause my dad normally spots for me. He's not going to make it. So I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about this. I've never even seen an event. And he's like, well, I know, but I had some other guy who was going to do it. And he doesn't know anything about anything. So you'd be better than him. I thought, <laughs> uh, Perfect. I, okay. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I, I was hesitant, but anyway, I was blown away. Like I went to the event and, it was funny because I remember the first time my mom went to an event was I think the next year and she went to the top truck challenge with me. Right. So she sees the first rock crawling event and says, this makes the top truck challenge look stupid. And I said, yeah, it does. Like, because I don't know if you've ever realized, but like the top truck challenge, you see it in the magazine and they made it look like it was the world championship of four wheeling. Right. Right. That was their job to make it look like this was a huge deal. And, you know, as a kid growing up, you see it in the magazines and it was like the baddest that these guys were like heroes. Right. I mean, I went out there and my truck was a piece of crap. I mean, it was a piece of junk. And uh, obviously, like the year I was there, Jr. was won in his first Bronco. I mean, that thing was amazing. Right. But, you know, it, it, the top truck challenge was far from any type of like world championship. You know, it's just a guy that got voted in cause he had a cool picture of his rig, but yeah, the rock crawling competitions was, it was definitely another level as far as how extreme this stuff was. So anyway, yeah, I went to, uh, the next event. That same guy asked me, Hot dog Mike. That crazy story, like just total coincidence that I got to go to this uh, spotted form at this first event, right? Well, the next event was in Jellicoe, Tennessee, and I was going to ride down there with him, and his dad was going to spot for him. And uh, his dad, he didn't get hurt or anything, but his dad got in a car accident on his way to Mike's house the day we were leaving to go down to, to Jellicoe. And he's like, Mike looks at me, gets off the phone. He's like, well, you want a spot for me? I said, yeah, let's go. And so I ended up spotting for him. Then Supercrawl was coming up and where was Supercrawl that year? It was in St. George. That was the second one. You know, I was super excited to go. I was going to go no matter what. Troy was competing. A guy named Mike Smythe. You remember space ghost, Mike Smythe vaguely. Vaguely on pirate. Yeah. yeah. He was one of those guys that was big into it for a while. And, you know, he totally got out and I don't know what year, Oh five or something maybe. But so anyway, Mike Smythe needed a guy to spot for him. And I, so I went to St. George and spotted for Mike Smythe. And then the next year there was a couple events at the Badlands and I competed in my willies. And at the time my willies, he was on like 37 inch stickies and, Dana sixties and had rear steer had like a 92 inch wheelbase. And it was far from a super badass buggy, but it was a cool rig. A lot of people still love that thing, but you know, because it had rear steer and it didn't meet the rules for any other class I ran in the unlimited class. And at the time, I mean, I was, 
I was certainly pretty fearless with it and drove the hell out of it, but wasn't competitive. <laughs> right. Yeah. What was the first, you know, ground up build that you did for yourself? Did that happen once you got out to Nevada? Did you compete in the, your Willis until 07? No. Uh, so basically what happened was, I can't remember that, that first event, I think there was... 28 guys in my class, or 25 guys in my class, and I got like 21st, right? And then the next event, I think there was like 30 guys, and I got 27th or something. And both of these events, I rolled, who knows, a couple times, two or three times each event, broke stuff each event, missed courses because I broke stuff. And at the end of the, the second event, there was a I rolled down this big hill like two times down this big hill and broke my rig and crowd was going crazy. Thought it was nuts. I remember the next day at work, the guy that ended up spotting for me for like four years, a good friend of mine, Brian Howard, that I worked with at the Badlands. He tells me Monday morning, he's like, I think you're going to need to build a buggy or, or hang it up. <laughs> I said, why is that? He's like, well, People are starting to talk. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, I was sitting there watching you. And people are like, I don't even know why this guy's out here. There's no way he can he can hang with these guys. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And so, I mean, I don't think it was long after that that I started building a chassis. And that guy that I mentioned earlier, Rob Brown, I'd never built a chassis before. I'd done some tube bending and whatnot, but not a ton. And Troy was cool enough to let me use let me use the shop all the time and basically tie up the chassis table for a while while I was building my first chassis. <laughs> I remember the first day I'm asking Rob, I'm like, after work, you know, I'm like, well, how do you know how to do this? And what angle is this? And how wide is this? And <laughs> Rob held me for like 10 minutes. He's like, well, seems like you got it handled. So uh, good luck with everything. And so, you know, I was just figured it out along the way. And yeah, built my, parted out my willies basically to, to build my first rig, first buggy, that thing. It, yeah, it took me most of the summer bad timing really to decide to do it like middle of the summer that I decided to part out my, my only rig, you know, didn't really start competing with the new buggy until, till the next year. So this is roughly 2006 ish, 2005, 2006. Oh yeah. That was, so that was 2004. Oh wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so you really did only make it like two events with the Willis and you're like, I'm done. Well, right. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> How did you do those next couple of years in that car? 2005 was it was the first year of we rock first year of we rock at all there was uh cow rocks before that big rich was running cow rocks and then from cow rocks you know things were going well i guess for cow rocks and i decided to make a national series which we're all thankful that he did so we rock was you know had four east coast events or whatever that year and so i decided I'm going to run We Rock. I'm going to run all these events. And I, I can't remember what all events. I think I ran like two different series, We Rock and New Rock that year, which was kind of, you know, out of Pennsylvania. Uh, Paragon was where half the New Rock events were. So 2005, We Rock, the first event of the year was at the Badlands, coincidentally. And I was all ready to go. I was super excited about competing for real and a full-blown buggy and everything. And I remember being so nervous on the first course, like I could not make it up this climb, broke my car and broke it bad enough that we missed the whole first day. Oh shit. <laughs> so then the second day 
you know, you go out there and you have nothing to lose. You're like, well, we're, we're not going to win. We're not even going to do well. So we might as well go have fun and get some practice in. And second day we did good. I remember looking at comparing our scores at the end of the event and going, man, our scores on the second day, I mean, we would have been pretty close to the competitive at least. And that's a relief, right? That's somewhat rewarding. Yeah. It makes you feel good. And you know, I, I totally get it. It's just like a, if you do at King of the Hammers, you're looking at the split times and you go from this point to this point, we were as fast as so-and-so. And you kind of have to take those little victories sometimes just to absolutely take the edge off the sting, right? To go, he, you know, we could have done well, you know, you broke or whatever, but you got to use it as motivation to, to keep you going sometimes. No, absolutely. You need to, you need to dig down deep and find the silver linings. That's yeah. You know I mean, the people that sit back and just only look at the doom and gloom from each situation that makes for a hard anxiety filled life. That's for sure. So before that first event of 2005, I bought brand new 39 inch tires for my car. And the next event was five weeks later. You've always been known as a Maxxis guy. Were they Maxxis's then? No, because Maxxis didn't even have a, Maxxis had a a non-sticky 37 that a few guys were running, but you know, no one was taking that too seriously. Uh, so there were some pro mod guys running and that was it. Okay. So I was running 39 inch BFGs before the second event of the season, five weeks later. And keep in mind, this is, you know, I'm making 14 bucks an hour at this point before the second event of the season, I had to buy new tires because I went out wheeling every day from the time I got off of work until the time the sun was going down by myself pretty much every day practicing. So I was like going out, setting up cones, driving my buggy all the time. And that's what it takes. That's serious. And now that you're looking back, how many, how many world championships do you have now? Well, so saying world championship is kind of weird. Well, right. Championships. I don't know. I mean, because there was many years ago, 2006, we rock had a event that was called the world championship. Right, Right. Yeah. But other than that, they've never had one that was technically the world championship, right? But you've got a handful, though, correct? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, you absolutely do, and I love how you, you like pregnant pause that. But yeah, you you do. But that's what it took. Like it took all that time of continually to go out and practice. It's the people that show up and they just want to wreck wheel. You know, maybe they're wreck wheelers. They wreck wheel five, six times a year max, and then they want to go compete, and then they're disappointed in their performance. Because that's the only time they're in their car is during the competition. Yeah, and I'm sure the same thing happens with Ultra 4 Racing, but I remember back then. Absolutely, it does. There was tons of guys that they would go to this event, and there was times where like they would go to an event and there was something wrong with their car, and they would show up at the next event with the same thing wrong with their car. They haven't worked on it between the events. They haven't drove it, and it's like, how can you expect to get better or, you know, to have better results when you, you aren't taking it to, you know, I mean, I don't expect everyone to take it seriously. Like it's their main priority, but obviously to improve, you got to put some time into it. Yeah, absolutely. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 ultra four racing 4,400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brand Motorsports Custom Machine. 
This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon, and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the talent tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brandon hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5.8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brandon my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small, their amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brennick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the U.S. USA moniker, no matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannick axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannick, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannickMotorsports.com. Brannick is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. So what made you go to Schaefer's? What made you move out West? What was the catalyst to, to, to leave? Cause you're a Midwest guy, Michigan, right? That's a leap. And I remember when you did it, like you, you were a large enough name to be a pirate that it was like a big deal to go out. You know, Schaefer, Mike Schaefer had recruited you out there. How did, how did that go down? We won't get too much into some of it, but well, Troy started losing interest in rock crawling in like 2005. And at the end of 2005, he sold his car. He didn't compete again for 2006 or seven. He never competed again after 2005. And without a doubt, the reason that they had that shop at the Badlands was because Troy wanted to have guys there that could build a car for him or maintain his car or build some other projects or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And so... Once Troy started losing interest, I mean, like I said, the shop wasn't there to make money. The shop was like a hobby for him. And so once he started losing interest, it was like, well, what's the point in having this shop? So I think it was like spring 2007, Troy sat us down and said, well, I think I'm going to close the shop. You guys can stay as long as you want till you find something else. I'm not going to just shut it up and kick you out. But, you know, start looking for something else. Well, yeah, I started looking for another job and I ended up, they asked me if I wanted to stay longer. I ended up staying at the Badlands, well, the whole summer that year. There was another shop that was actually pursuing me and interested in me coming to work for them. And I went down to visit that shop and we were going back and forth talking about, it. I won't say who it was, but they made promises and 
just I ended up telling him to <laughs> screw it. I don't I'm not interested anymore, basically. And it was frustrating because I was ready to move, ready to go there. And they just dragged me along. And so I said, you know, screw it. Well, coincidentally, I was pretty good friends, still am, with uh, little Rich Klein. He knew what was going on. And he was talking to Mike Schaefer one day on at Jeepers Jamboree or something. And Mike said, I'll give him a job. I'd love to have him out here. And so there you go. One thing led to another. It was kind of crazy sequence of events. Uh, I almost had to talk after Mike said he wanted to have me there. I almost had to talk him into letting me come out there because now as a shop owner, I totally understand where I get people all the time that are like, Hey, I'm in Nebraska, but I'd love to come work for you and all this. And it's like, yeah, the, the problem is now I feel like this obligation of it's got to work out. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you move all the way halfway across the country. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mike was feeling that too. And I had to like talk him into it. Like, Mike, I don't care. Like I'll make it work. It's not the kind of thing where if it doesn't work out, I'm I'm probably going to stay out there regardless. You show up at Schaefer's there for a little bit and then, then you end up at Torchmate. Yeah. Well, there was a step in between there of what linked the two together. One of the big reasons Mike wanted me to come there was because someone that knew someone, guy that worked at Torchmate, talked uh, Bill, the owner of Torchmate, Bill into b- building a rock crawling buggy. Okay. And so, you know, they're only, uh, Schaefer's Off Road was only 45 minutes from Torchmate. Well, they worked out some type of deal where, uh, Schaefer's was going to build a buggy for, for Torchmate and Torchmate gave them a plasma table and all this stuff. And coincidentally, all of my years of computer aided drafting after literally not using this stuff for like five years was yeah, five, six years. Now all of a sudden, like it's pretty critical because I've got to use computer aided drafting to draw all this stuff on a Torchmate machine. So yeah, next thing you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm building the buggy for the, for Torchmate. And when we got that done, Bill, he asked me if I'd be interested in coming to work for him. I don't know. I mean, at the time I'd been in the off-road industry for five years or whatever. And it was a, it was a good opportunity. I'm sure I was hesitant about, you know, getting away from off-road stuff, but basically what Bill wanted me to come do was at the time they didn't produce anything in-house. They built uh, aluminum extrusion tables or they had, they were having some shop in Kentucky or something build some bigger tables for them. And they wanted to start doing that in-house. So that was a big thing for me. They hired me there to uh, start the shop basically and figure out how to build this stuff. Yeah, I have uh, my, my Torchmate table is one of the aluminum extrusion tables. Yeah. It's still good. I mean, it's, what year is this, 20? I mean, it's coming on, it's nine nine or 10 years old now. It still, still works great. Yeah, I have one that I definitely don't. I use quite a bit, and I don't do much to maintain it. I fix it when it breaks. That's about it. Yeah, and they just chug along. Yeah, I mean, really, it's been pretty trouble-free. So how cool was it when Bill and company decided to build that TTB car and tasked you up on that? My time at Torchmate was interesting because there was times where all I did was work on just work on plasma tables. I mean, that was most of it. I think it was the first year I was there. I decided to build a car for King of the Hammers and Bill was like super supportive. And he also saw 
that the stuff that I was doing was really promoting his product pretty well. So I built a car for myself in 2000, 2009 King of the Hammers, basically. Towards the end, I think it was like the last month or, yeah, at least the last month, Bill basically told me that I could just work on my own car full time, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, he paid me to come in every day and work on my own car to get my car done. You know, it was uh, doing a lot to promote Torchmate stuff because I was specifically trying to cut out some pretty elaborate stuff on on that car that uh, showed off what the machines could do. But yeah, it was uh, after that, for the most part, I was just back to building tables and designing some products and whatnot. Your experience there in the, the U4, right in those early years of Ultra 4, you didn't have a lot of success in the go fast stuff. The big one was King of the Hammers. The, 2009, it was kind of a joke, showed up last minute, uh, typical, <laughs> typical stuff for a lot of people. I remember 2009 showing up to the race and it was so new and there were so many people with no experience doing that and new cars. And I remember it was like Thursday. I specifically remember like Jason Pauly and I were both like buying race radios and stuff. And we had no idea what we were doing and hooking this stuff up like, you know, the night before the race, basically. And, and that used to be pretty common. Like PCI oh, yeah. would be there and like you would <laughs> order, you would have ordered your GPS like maybe the week before. So they'd have it on the truck to bring it. But you'd be installing race radios and, uh, and GPS in the low rants in your car, like on the lake oh. bed. <laughs> Yo, I'm sure those first few years, they probably sold out of stuff like GPSs because I'm sure there are guys like you have GPSs. I should probably get one. I'm racing tomorrow. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'll never forget the Clint Ellett story. Clint Ellett, I, I believe it was 2009. It might've been 10, but somewhere in there, Clint Ellett leading the race and like leading the race by like a lot. Like he had <laughs> driven away from, from the crowd. Like he was gone, but he didn't have GPS and he gets lost. He gets lost yeah. so bad. Like he never even refound the course. He just came right back to Hammertown. They're like, what happened to you? You were way out front by like a 30 minute lead. It's like, right. I got lost. I didn't, I didn't know where the course was. So yeah, I know that the early days of King of the Hammers were, it's pretty crazy to look back and see what a disaster it was for a lot of people. And you know, those guys like the tin bender guys that were really familiar with the area they didn't even have to have fast cars. They could just go out there and you realize then it's like, it's crazy to look back at like rock crawling buggies where you're like, my car has to make it 10 minutes. Even if it like your fan quits working in the middle of that 10 minutes, you're like, well, I think we can finish without it overheating. Right. And going from that to having to race for like eight to 14 hours or whatever, and not have any issues. Yeah, it's, it's hard. hard. Where the guys that were trail wheeling a ton and trail wheeling at the hammers, you know, they were used to it. They had to go out for the whole weekend and drive, you know, put 70 miles on their car during the weekend. Or It was a whole new world for a lot of rock crawler guys and probably East Coast guys, too, because most of the East Coast guys, you're going to an off-road park and you might put like eight miles on your car the whole weekend. The you know trailer's I mean? still close. Right. So, yeah, it was a whole new world for uh, a lot of us that started racing at the Hammers. And then as we kind of progressed, you had some success. You had at least one podium. You podiumed in Utah back in like 11. Yeah. And then you kind of just kind of 
didn't you didn't hang it up, but you started really focusing on yourself and what you did at Torchmate. You end up hanging your own uh, shingle out somewhere right in there. It was about 2011, 2012 is when you started Jesse Haynes Fab? Yeah, basically it was December 2011. At that point, I had worked at Torchmate for almost four and a half years. And so getting back to the TTB car story. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we started it and then bailed on it. You know, like I was talking about, getting away from being at the off in the off-road industry and working at Torchmate. It's weird to look back because being a business owner now, you feel like you're never really off the clock in a way. You know, you're always available to work to some extent, whether it's answering emails or working in the shop or driving to go get parts. You know, there was times where I was working at Torchmate where we were just welding tables and you're just doing production welding and you could kind of sit there and it was like I could just sit there and weld and I had no obligations. Once the, you know, you punch out at 430, you don't have to think about work anymore. And I, I mean, I look back and think, yeah, that was pretty nice to there's, not. There's some luxury and comfort there, right? The big thing is just being able to clock out and not have to think about work until you get there the next day, you know, where I started building cars and chassis while at home while I was still working at Torchmate because, you know, I had the time, had the time to do it. We worked 40 hours a week at Torchmate. And then I guarantee there was times where I was working 40 hours a week at Torchmate and working 40 hours a week at home to make stuff happen. And then Lincoln bought Torchmate in 2011. And I will say that in some ways that kind of pushed me out the door as far as people had been telling me you should open your own shop for years. But I was just, you know, hesitant to do it, afraid to basically. I don't know. I just was getting less and less happy working there. And then we started working 50 hours a week. And although 50 hours a week, most people will say, or a lot of people will say that's, oh, that's nothing. Well, I was also trying to work at home as much as possible, you know, doing stuff for customers. So it was, uh, it just got to where it was overwhelming. They, they basically told us 50 hours a week's your standard schedule now. And I just started to hate it and couldn't do it anymore. And one day, I just said, this is it. I'm, I'm done. And I had a few jobs lined up to do, you know, if I did start my own business. So I just said, now's the time. That was December, 2011. And so, yeah, that was when things started 2012, essentially. And then, so here we are, right? <laughs> Caught, no, no, I, I, I joke. It's, you know, eight years, right? Eight years of grinding it out, but man, you've had a ton of successes. One, we talked about, you touched on earlier, bringing rock crawling back. Uh, that's one thing, but your recent, you know, success at King of the Hammers, that's pretty awesome with, with a rock sore. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. When you rolled that thing out, uh, over a year ago, I just started laughing. I was like, no way is somebody going to build a rock sore. And then you showed up at KOH with it a year ago, but I didn't even, did you DNF with it in 2019? Yeah. So it was, you know, in some ways it was kind of embarrassing because last year, was the worst worst hammers race for me since 2009 like it was the least prepared i've been since the first year i raced which i've learned a ton since the first year i've raced so for me to be back at that level of you know half-assing it together at the last minute it sucked but 
I really underestimated how long it was going to take to build that thing. When you look at it on paper, you go, okay, well, I'm building something for the stock class. It runs and drives already. I don't have to do anything to the motor. I'm not doing anything to the tranny. I ended up doing a bunch to the transfer case, like clocking the transfer case and whatever, but it sounds easy on paper. I mean, it really doesn't sound that complicated. And I thought, you know, maybe like a six week build or something. And uh, there's not much doubt in my mind that I could have built a pretty legit 4,800 class car in the same amount of time that it took me <laughs> right? to build the rock tour. I'm still not done with the build of the rock tour. Like there's still stuff that I'm like, well, this is stuff that I originally planned to do and I still don't have it done, but obviously the car's together and, and working. How did that Genesis happen? How did Mahindra end up delivering you uh, a rock tour to begin with? What's that story? So I remember whatever, I guess almost two years ago, close to two years ago in June, 2018, I guess was I started seeing those things advertised and thinking, man, that's, that's pretty cool. Like those things are pretty cool. It'd be neat to have one, but I don't know. You know, I didn't think too much of it. And then one day I just thought, you know, I wonder if you could get in touch with the right person, if they would be interested in racing one at King of the Hammers. You know, one thing led to another, and I basically talked to the right person. And what happened? Well, I'll say this: uh, Tim Lund is the guy that you know connected point A to point B. There, he had been working with them, and I contacted him, so I knew him, and what a he small knew world, them, right? Yeah, and and I think the only reason it actually happened was because these companies end up with cars that they either need to scrap or sell them, give them away or whatever. So my original deal with them was you have to have this car in a booth at SEMA. You have to have it, you know, set up and ready to go and at SEMA. And we had like a month to build it, to get it ready for SEMA. Just getting it ready for SEMA was completely ridiculous. And it was half-assed done for SEMA, which how surprising is that? SEMA, half-assed SEMA build. So the stereotypical, right. But even at that point, a month into it, which this is like a, a, a solid month of, you know, me and a, another guy working on it, like half the time, quite a few hours went into it. And at that point I'm like, well, we, you know, we're probably 75% of the way done now. And so take another at the most, it'll take another month to, to finish it up. No, yeah, right. No, no way. And so the tough thing was I try and schedule my stuff well in advance. Like if I want to build a buggy for myself, I don't just go, well, I'm going to build a buggy for myself next month. It's like, I have to plan it out, you know, at least a year in advance usually. So I like the scheduling works out where I can take some time off to, to build a car. So since I underestimated how much time it would take to build this rock or I still had customer stuff to do. I still had to build a car for a customer in the middle of that build. And so next thing you know, I mean, I'm like out of time and underestimating it every step of the way as far as how much work it's going to be. And we showed up at the lake bed. And I mean, I knew how half-assed and far behind I was. That's half the battle though, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, recognizing 
how underprepared you are is maybe even more than half the battle. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's for sure. So one of the things that was the biggest headache still to this day, the biggest headache on the car is dealing with leaf springs and just how much, how much the suspension can move sideways, how much it's going to wrap and how much it's going to figuring that stuff out is way more complicated than doing links just because links are a hundred percent predictable. You always know where the suspension is going to cycle. And so we've run into issues with the rocks or like I broke the crank pulley a few times because the crank pulley hits the axle housing. And when you cycle it, like in the shop, you say, it's not, there's no reason it's not. Yeah. It's not going to hit. And I think we finally got that sorted out a few other issues that we finally got sorted out too. But that first year it was so bad. We showed up at tech the day before the race or night before the race. And I've told JT about this story. I haven't told Dave, but we're going through tech. The guy that was doing the tech on my car was pretty disrespectful. Like he, uh, he basically was looking at my car and he says, are you guys actually like here to legitimately race? Or are you just here to make a showing? I was like, uh, we're, I'm here to race. And he's like, okay. And he's looking at stuff on the car and he's just shaking his head. And he says, you know, the, you, you'll see what it's like when you get out there. And I'm like, I've raced before here. <laughs> like the last time I raced, I finished 29th in the 4,400 class. And he's like, Oh, okay. Well, it, it was, I don't know. I mean, it was still embarrassing for me. The fact that we were, that poorly prepared for the race you know what i mean but but then you put it together this year and came back and put it on the box uh, yeah <laughs> yeah and you know the well nationals ultra four nationals last year we had some time in the car we had like put some miles on it and done some tuning and some some testing and i was only planning on doing king of the hammers and i mean ultra four nationals is an awesome race and it's 15 minutes from my house, so how do you how do you skip that one? Yeah, you'd be remiss to skip that, right? To me, it's it's crazier to think that I was second at Ultra Four Nationals than it is to think that I won King of the Hammers because Ultra Four Nationals, it's a short course race. I mean, there's a bunch of sprints in the race, and I think I can pretty confidently say that if we lined all of the cars up in the 4,600 class that we're racing at ultra four nationals, there's no doubt mine is the slowest from point A to point B on that short course. So like, how did I, you know, how did I beat everyone except one guy, but is a matter of getting through the rocks and keeping the car together. And it's all of it. Right. I mean, to win, you must first finish. So, yeah, but yeah, King of the hammers this year, I can't say I felt extremely prepared for the race. There's always more that you want to get done and, you know, more improvements and tuning that you, you wish you would have had time to do. But, you know, we were we were going out there and I'm thinking, well, you know, I will tell you this, that the original conversation that I had with Dave Cole, I called him and there's always conspiracy theories about how, why my UTV is legal in the 4600 class and i don't know how if you read some of the stuff the first year that it you know when i debuted it at sema and everyone uh i mean it's on leaf springs come on guys like if you're gonna complain about <laughs> if, if we're gonna complain about a utv i mean yeah 
And so I can tell you that the conversation went when I called Dave, I said, uh, I'm thinking about racing a Roxor in the 4600 class, but I just want to make sure it would be legal. And Dave says, a what? I said, a Mahindra Roxor. He's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, it's basically like a Jeep with leaf springs, but it's got a hundred or a 63 horsepower diesel engine. He's like, yeah. He said, has it got an automotive engine? And I said, yeah. And he said, automotive tranny? I said, yeah. Automotive transfer case? I said, yeah. It's got Dana 44s in it and everything. And he said, I don't, yeah, I don't care. You can race it. I mean, it's not like you're going to win. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I can picture, and anyone listening to this can picture Dave saying, exactly, well, you can race it, man. I like you're going to win. <laughs> yeah, which I haven't had a chance to remind him of that conversation. I don't know if he remembers it or not. But, yeah, I mean, I didn't go into this King of the Hammers thinking we would win. I mean, I thought, yeah, there's a there's always a chance because I remember when Dave told me you're not going to win, I said, um, Dave, I don't know if you realize this. There's some years that there's only been like three people that finish. He's like, yeah, well, yeah. Like you could finish on the podium if you just finish the race. Anyway, yeah, we start the race this year. I mean, we just kept going. I mean, that's, that was the big thing. I mean, at, at what point did you realize that you were leading the class or did you know? Never, never. <laughs> I felt like we were doing pretty good. I mean, one thing that was super cool was our fuel efficiency. We had a decent idea of our fuel efficiency, but we have an actual gauge in the car. It runs factory, two factory gauges. It has two eight-gallon tanks. So, you know, I know how much fuel we have in the car as opposed to most people that have to just guess. You know, we went well past the first lap back to pit one before we did our first fuel stop. And just the fact that we kept going without issues, it was like, yeah, we passed quite a few guys. We passed quite a few people in the class into the first lap. Well, as we started the second lap, we ended up getting out of the car because we heard this horrible banging that sounded like we were on our way to, you know, driving over the front axle or something we looked at the car for like five minutes trying to figure it out. We got passed by two guys and it was Justin Reese and Dawson Allington. Then we finally realized it was the high lift Jack handle that was banging around and like, okay, well, never heard the, you know, strap the handle down better and never heard the noise again. So now those two that passed you, did, did they ultimately end up taking each other out? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't, I I've only heard the, the rumors and speculation. I've heard the secondhand stories that yeah, Justin you, was on a sand hill sideways and he, as Dawson was making the run up the sand hill, Reese pulled out and they yeah. hit each, he T-boned him or jumped him or rammed him and took them both out or, yeah, or maybe Justin continued. I don't. Yeah. And you know, if you're racing, you know how that stuff happens. It's like, you think someone's paying attention, but they're not. But you assumed they were, and so they did something you didn't expect. Oh, yeah. I'm well, sure no one intentionally did. No, did no. I, yeah, I didn't mean anything by a nefarious no, of nature. for sure. For but, sure. Yeah, when you have all your safety gear on, when your Hans is on, you can't turn your head, you know, four, 30 degrees to the left to look out the window. And if you're entering back to the race course at a certain angle, your right. mirrors don't even show down course. So No. Who knows where Dawson would have ended up, but um, – but I will say, I think they were both, I think they were both behind me at that point, but 
yeah, we just kept going. And I remember telling my co-driver we, a couple conversations that we had. One, telling him, uh, yeah, you know, I don't think there's any chance. This is probably, this is actually before we got to the rock trails, saying, yeah, I, I don't think there's any chance we're going to win at this point. But, you know, it, maybe we'll, maybe still could finish on the podium. Then a little while later, we're going up some rough trails, I think, but after Aftershock, and he's like, this sucks. <laughs> and I said, yeah. Yeah, it does. I said, did you think it was going to be fun? He's like, well, I don't know. I, I didn't think it would be this bad. I'm like, no, this race sucks. Like, it's nothing about it's fun. Like, it, it's crazy because – Every year you race, you're there and you're going, I remember thinking to myself, like you're driving and you're driving through the desert and it's beating the crap out of you. And you're like, God, this part sucks. And then you get to the rocks and you're trying to drive through the rocks fast and it's beating the crap out of you. And you're like, this part sucks too. Then the parts between the rock trails where it's just, you know, medium sized rocks that yeah and you're like and that sucks all sucks and the (laughs) only part of the race that's like can be somewhat enjoyable is driving across the lake bed they're like oh this part doesn't suck (laughs) but so anyway yeah oh Uh, no you guys are dialed in i mean uh, matt howell calls it embracing the suck (laughs) man honestly that's perfect words for it it's uh yeah it's it's terrible but we keep coming back for more yeah and the funny thing is like you know, you're fresh at the beginning of the race. I think there's a, a part like halfway through where you're sitting there thinking to yourself, this really sucks. And uh, this is not fun. But then, you know, as you get later and later into the race, you get like uh second wind, you get a second wind, probably from, you know, adrenaline of the fact that you're like, we're going, man, we're, we're getting there. Like we're going to get to the finish. And then all of a sudden you forget, you don't realize how much it sucks anymore. You know, <laughs> But so you end up uh, second place was like almost an hour behind you though. That's also you put some time on. I don't know. We had a friend that was at Jackhammer, I think, and when we drove through, he was he had a radio and he radioed to us and said, "I think you guys are in second place right now." And you know, as we drove away, I was telling my co-driver, I was like, "I don't think that's right." I said, "Um, the the funny thing was, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I think it." John Schaefer. So last year, John Schaefer was really fast. He's got the old savvy Jeep. Well, I kept thinking we haven't seen John Schaefer all day. And so John Schaefer's got to be in front of us. And I didn't realize until after the race that John painted his Jeep orange instead of the Falcon colors. And then I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember passing him. He was broke down, but so yeah, the whole time we kept even, after we took the lead, I kept thinking you were in second. Yeah. We haven't seen John Schaefer all day. We, at least he's in front of us for sure. So yeah, there was the crazy traffic jam that some people saw on video at chocolate thunder where we pulled up and the Falcon Cherokee was stuck blocking the, the easiest line to get through there. And we tried to pass them and, uh, flopped on its side trying to trying to get around him which it was the big rock that you saw a ton of people go up and pivot around well instead of being able to pivot around like i had to drive side hill an extra like 15 feet to be able to get past the nose of his car and 
rolled in the process of doing it. And then it was, you know, Justin Reese came in there and he rolled at the same time. And it was, we didn't know at the time, but it was first, second, and third were almost touching each other for like 10 minutes. So then, yeah, I ended up flipping the car back over with high lift Jack and getting out of there. And at that point I knew that those guys were going to be a little ways behind us. So, you know, we took it easy to some extent, just like, well, I think if we keep up this pace, we're going to stay ahead of those guys and let's just get to the finish line. I mean, it paid off. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, a typical racer fashion, like after the race, instead of thinking about how awesome it was that I won, I was thinking about, man, we could have been a lot faster. There's <laughs> so much like we could have made up time here. We could have done this differently. We need to make these changes to make the car faster. So who broke it to you? Who broke it to you that you were the first one in? Uh, Dave. Dave. <laughs> so they were at the finish line and I pulled in and everyone seems excited. And I'm like, hey, they're excited I'd finished or something. I don't know. So then Dave said something like, you know where you finished, right? I said, no. He's like, you want I'm like, what, what? And there's like a, there's a picture of it basically when Dave tells me, and I'm like, no way. But yeah, it was, it was a shock. <laughs> we, uh, this is typical for me as far as not being prepared for the race is very well. The day before the race we're you know, trying to get everything planned out as far as logistics, we didn't bring any of our race radios. The only thing we had was handheld radios because I left them all at home. Oh, crap. I'm like, oh, okay. So we really didn't have much communication. Like basically we had communication when we pitted the one time, but that was, you know, relatively early in the race. And then when one of our buddies told us that we were in second at Jackhammer, that was the last time we communicated with anyone. We were just out there driving, you know. Hey, whatever works, man. Next yeah. year, you know, forget the radios next year too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes I feel like uh, I feel like that that works. You know, you just drive. It's something that I've I've become good at going to the race and just driving. And I think it was our key to success this year was drive your race. There was times where people people passed us or whatever, and you just go he's going faster than I think we can drive and get this car to the finish line. It's a little different than 4,400, like 4,400, you know, maybe the, the fast guys are pushing it as fast as they feel comfortable without wrecking the car, you know, in a lot of the air sections of the course where I'm basically pushing it as fast as I can without breaking the car because it's not like it works awesome. You could try and drive it like 60 through. Uh, it doesn't even go 60. <laughs> we'll you could try out and drive it 50 through this section of the course, but like you're going to wreck it. You know, you're going to break it. And so you just got to feel out what the car is telling you as far as what's going to get you to the finish line, you know? Well, congrats on your, your, your win. I know you're going to be going after it again hard in 21. Stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. For the past 10 years, there has been a group of individuals working hard, pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology. 
Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but, with extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website, so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you are a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about Jesse Ains fabrication. All right. Right. So you're, uh, you're about eight years in, I know nothing happens overnight. That's so, so eight years is crazy. Uh, it feels almost like it, it feels like yesterday from my it perspective does. and yeah, exactly from yours too, but your passion for innovation, your passion for crawling, your passion to move the ball forward on technology, everything that I've seen you do, everything from this, actually some recent stuff, you've taken a 1.4 liter Ecotech. I mean, the, the oiling system, I mean, it was designed by, you know, Ford engineers. GM. To oil a certain, sorry, G- yeah. GM engineers. And you said, you know, that's not good enough. I want to not make this thing three inches shorter. And so I'm going to completely redesign the oiling system for this thing. It's not good enough. It's that type of innovation that you've continued to push the limits on. We talked about it earlier with that Turbo Hydro 425 in that uh, Tomahawk buggy. Or I'm sorry, the Apache buggy. I don't know why I want to call it Tomahawk in the Apache buggy. Yeah. But you've continued that through so many other chassis and, and so many different platforms. And and you always have like funny names for your cars. But you've, you've had some that kind of look uh, like a Willys. Right. Or a Jeep. Like you put together a, a recent one. I think it was, I want to say it was 2018. You and I talked in uh, Hammertown. You had a white Jeep there right. that, I mean, yeah. I, I was just ogling over how simple it was. I mean, it was so simple on in every facet, like everything had its place and it was, it was gorgeous. And then, and then you go the other route, you've got your single seat moon buggies that are so purpose built for winning championships. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of different strategies that fabricators have as far as what they like doing as far as what they're passionate about. And I don't know, just throwing something out there, like look at like wide open design, like they build some really 
cool looking cars and they build these cars with complicated cool interiors those cars you know they work good but a lot of it is building a car that looks awesome yeah adam you know Wood- I mean? oh yeah adam woodley he's got one he's got an eye for aesthetics and his cars are known yeah. for aesthetics and and there's certain there's other cars out there that are built almost fully aesthetics i mean i mean you know they work but right could they work better what versus yours or you are for the most part like 99% utilitarian 1% right. aesthetic now i'm, and I'm not saying uh, they're yeah, ugly that like, you're saying. you say i'm going to accomplish x and these are the parts i need to accomplish x let me package them in the most sexy package possible but under that right. under those constraints of what you're trying to do yeah and some people would look at it and be like, you know, it would look cooler if this tube went like this. I'm like, that's, yeah, that's not really, it's specifically there because it needs to do this. Like, I'm not going to change it because it looks neat and not accomplishing its goal. The thing that I'm passionate about is building just the most capable rigs, which I really enjoy. That's why I really enjoy building single seat cars because once you put the second seat in there, in a way, it's like you've already like made all these compromises. That's the you know right I mean? word. That no, you threw the word yeah. out there. I, if you didn't say it, I was going to. Everything is a compromise, and it's like you want the compromises to be as minimal as possible. And when you right. do, when you go to that route, you're like, well, we're just we're we're gonna give up on everything. Yeah, and so basically, over the last year, I've kind of gotten to the point where. I've said, how do you evolve this stuff more? How do you, how do you improve things more than what you've already got? The limiting factor that we have is you're starting with a motor, regardless of what motor it is. It was not designed to do what you're trying to do. And I don't just mean like the performance of the motor. I just mean the packaging of the motor or the packaging of the transmission or the transfer case, like all this stuff, it's not designed to do what you need it to do specifically, if that makes sense. I mean, for what we're doing, obviously it's more convenient to have a two-speed transfer case, but I've gotten to the point where I was looking into the idea of designing my own transfer case that only does what I need it to do. You know what I mean? So that's something I've thought about a lot over the last year instead of saying, well, we're limited by this, like you're talking about with the oil pan, the oil system on this motor. I mean, most builders are going to look at the motor and go, well, there's the motor and we just sit it in there and that's how it goes. And, you know, I'm trying to look at it more like, well, there's a couple things like the adapter plate that I made, it clocks the motor like 21 degrees. And the reason it clocks the motor is because you're basically leaning the head of the motor and everything and trying to get it more behind the driver's seat. So you can look over your right shoulder and the view is not obstructed by a head. Yeah. Right. And so it's just little things like that, that instead of just saying, this is what we have to work with saying, well, how can we make that better? And you're looking at it from a perspective of not sitting necessarily on a flat horizontal chassis table you're thinking about if i have it in the field and i'm sitting in the driver's seat i look over my shoulder what am i seeing what's my field of view can i see that cone yeah and this guy john nelson is the guy that built 
the scrapper buggy and tiny and many like trophy trucks and other successful off-road vehicles. That guy years ago, Rusty Bray, we were building a car for Rusty Bray and he went to a West coast event and he took pictures of all of these moon buggies because essentially what there was at the time was there was tiny that John Nelson built. There was scrapper that John Nelson built and there was, I mean, this is the reality of it. There was a bunch of guys that copied what John Nelson did. So I still have these pictures to this day, like they're eight by 11 pictures that he, he took and just those cars from all different angles. And there was pictures of other cars too, other cars that basically people had copied, you know, John Nelson's car. I threw all those pictures away because once I looked at them enough, I realized, man, this is, it doesn't make any sense what these other guys did. They tried to copy it, but they didn't know why that's exactly right. They didn't know what they were copying. There's so many things on the car that he did that people didn't understand why he did. So looking at those pictures, I've realized why he did so many of the things that he did. And one of them was a picture of the car from the front. You'd look at the picture of the car from the front and the copies of John Nelson's cars. You could only see maybe like 30% of the driver's seat because just the driver's seat alone, when you're looking at it from the front, was obstructed by the winch and the steering column and some tube work and the pedals and all this stuff. And then you look at John Nelson's car and you look at it from the front and you can see like 90% of the seat because he intentionally mounted everything in a way where it's not blocking the driver's view. Especially like when I started building Cody's car or any of these moon buggies, a lot of thought goes into to the visibility and the chassis design. There's a certain reason, and I'm sure a lot of people, some people understand it and a lot of people don't. Like the dash bar is really high. And people told me, oh, it looks kind of funny with the dash bar being that high. Well, basically the tube, the front cross member between the shocks kind of has to be at a certain height. There's not much you can do about it. It has to be basically at a certain height where where the shocks are going to mount. And then the dash bar, when you sit in the driver's seat, if you drew a line from the front cross member between the shocks, from your eyes to that tube, the dash bar is in line with that tube. So when you're sitting in the driver's seat, you see the dash bar and you can't even see the front cross member because it's behind the dash bar. So you created an eclipse. Right. Yeah, right. And there's other tube work in the front end that it's the same way, like trying to get the shocks at the same angle as some of the tube work because you have to block your vision with some of this stuff. So like doubling it up where hide it all behind the same item. Right. So there's just a lot of thought that goes into that stuff that, you know, at the end of the day, people look at the car and they don't see that stuff or, or realize it, but then they could sit in the car and go, Holy crap. You can see everything out of this. It's like, yeah. And, you know, mounting stuff like the cutting brakes, the cutting brakes are mounted, you know, they block your line of sight of the back of the tire, which is, why do you need to see the backside of the top of the tire? It's insignificant, really. And I've heard that from people that have driven, because Co- Cody, Cody Wagner, Cody will let anybody yeah. jump in his car. Cody is so, I mean, he's just a, one of the nicest guys in the world. And yeah, jump in there. And that's exactly the feedback. Be like, 
I, I can see everything. Cody's like, what? I mean, what are you going to do to it? You're not going to get in trouble. You, you're going 0.2 miles per hour at max. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's different. Like it's easy to let someone drive your rock crawler. Like it's not that big of a deal for most, you know, obviously depending on where they drive it, but most stuff it's like, yeah, dude, drive it all over. You're not going to break it where obviously you're not going to have someone hop in your 800 horsepower ultra four car and go, yeah, just uh, go drive it around a little bit. You could screw that up pretty quick. Yeah. In a hundred feet, even some people. So right. yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you've been, you're just on the innovative front of changing stuff and, and always driving to that next, that next level to, to move. I don't know the right words, but move the ball forward on innovation in the, in the crawling space. And like I said, I, I knew you put together uh, some prefab chassis that you were uh, that you were selling. Yeah, and that was that was that roughly the the same chassis that I saw you with in 2018. It was, yeah. And you know what's crazy about that is, so that kit chassis is it's based off of my Willys. Like in 2003, I rebuilt my Willys with the frame rails. This is when I was in college, like. I think this was even, I don't even know if it was MIG welded. Some of it I think was stick welded at the time, but two by three box tube, the whole frame was then, it, you know, I extended it at some point. And then in 2010, I built a refreshed replica of my Willys, which was a car I only had for eight months, but was a super awesome looking like Willys buggy. And you had it. And that was the one that was olive green. And yeah, did it go to Europe? No, or- I had other cars go to Europe, but that one, it's changed hands a handful of times. Went to Georgia or something originally. Guy just wrote me on Pirate. I was thinking about selling it because uh, I wanted to get back to competing in the unlimited class. And he said, how much would you sell that car for? And I said, 35 grand. And he said, I'll send you a check. And it was like, done. Never listed it for sale or anything. And I mean, 35 I don't know. The market on for buggies is is so up and down. Like, I mean, thirty five at the time seemed pretty good. I didn't have thirty five into it, so yeah, you got to take your money and be happy about it, right? Right. And then you've started. Uh, I mean, you've always had some level of chassis that is, you know, a, a Jesse Haynes fabrication chassis, some level of it. But currently, you're kind of pushing the the ones that are, and I think you even have one currently on the table for sale now. Unless it, unless it sold already yeah. since I saw it posted. Well, that was the old, so that was an old picture. Well, not super old, but like a picture of a car that I built for someone. So I was right now I'm taking orders for some production moon buggies. We sold quite a few of these production moon buggies. I think if you include Cody's and a couple others that were slightly different, I think we've sold like 12 of them. Oh, wow. That's and, killer. Well done. Yeah, no, it's it's quite a few, uh, and I don't remember how many of them have been finished so far, but, I mean, there's quite a few of them that are finished, too. And you were offering, if I remember right, you were offering, like, tab packages and everything. So, motor mounts, link mounts, everything. It, it wasn't just tube, it was... Right. It's easy to build a chassis and send it out the door and say, good luck with this. Yeah, that's like, the easiest part, right? The Bidding the tube, it's everything after that. Yeah. And so, I mean, when I'm selling a chassis, I want to be able to sell something that is easy and realistic for the customer to build. I've had a lot of people like in 2016, I built Prickle, this front engine single seat car. And I had a bunch of people that wanted to buy one of those. But the problem was 
I couldn't sell it to people. I, I basically told everyone, no, I'm not going to build you one because it was so specific to the motor and transmission and everything that I used that you couldn't put any other motor or tranny in it. It was just not going to work, you know? So if I'm going to sell something, I want to be able to sell stuff that, you know, a guy with decent fab skills is going to be able to build. So yeah, that's our moon buggies, a pretty good kit that we, uh, offer a lot of parts and tabs for. No, that's, that's killer. I mean, I've gotten a lot of people to ask me this question and they've asked me, in various forms or fashions, but one was about, Hey, if you could build one thing right now, what would it be? And then I'm like, well, am I racing East coast or racing West coast in this? You know, I asked Eric Miller this because I would say if I, if I'm racing East coast and King of the hammers is on a part of it, then I'm absolutely building a solid axle, you know, front, front and rear solid axle. That's how it's going to be. But you know, if I've got to race this thing KOH plus I want to do some best in the desert, maybe some Baja. Yeah. Then it absolutely has to be IFS. But if I yeah. were in a situation, and this is a conversation where my friend Derek Stewart, who's up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he bought he he bought a really well-known rock crawler that belonged to uh, you know a good friend of ours that passed away years ago, and this thing went into storage. He picked it up uh, this past year and kind of got back into the rock crawling game. Hmm. It was Jim Alexander's Sunray buggy, yeah, that had the 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 huge the huge knuckles and. I want to say they're 1550 U joints. I yeah. mean, it's, it, it's, it's a yeah. silly car. And it was so, you know, when Lance Gilbert and Sunray built that thing, gosh, man, it, 2007 it like, or oh, six, it's like a 15 year old yeah. car and it's still technologically. Oh, five ish, maybe yeah, even. And it's still so far uh, out there. And then our other friend, Blaze Millenson, Blaze has built, you know, a, a handful of cars and he's, he likes the, the single seat buggies and so we're always having this conversation and they're like dude we should just all get you know uh jesse haynes cars like that would be <laughs> lily you, you go to jesse you get your single seat you know comp chassis that you guys are pushing with all of the the tubes plus the tabs and you're ready made like you you slap it together you pull out the mig and you are probably up and running on weekends weekends if you aren't focused you could have the car ready in six or eight months yeah yeah unfocused right now if you're super focused yeah and you'll work nights and weekends yeah you probably be on the trail two months maybe less a few of the cars maybe three or so maybe more four uh have gone to sand hollow off-road steve nance that owns sand hollow off-roads put a few of them together and so we work with him and like he's familiar with them so he's been able to build them pretty quick for for a few customers and yeah i mean that helps get them on the road for sure well it, it helps in not recreating the wheel and taking the guesswork out of it literally a guy can a guy can come to you he's gonna have you're, you have the right geometry you've you've figured out the recipe so to speak and make it happen versus hey they built it we've built it we've now i'm gonna you know, i go wheel it this weekend i realize well that broke that sucked that didn't work the way i thought it would why does Jesse do it the way he does it? Well, you know, I could have saved myself all this hassle. And when it comes to the point of our vacation time and rec time and what it costs to go out on the weekend and, you know, just diesel fuel and a hotel or an RV or whatever it is, if you're camping, that starts getting to be a pretty large number to go out and break your junk and then sit on the trailer and turn around after an hour or whatever that is. It's, we used to do that. Don't get me wrong. And I mean, that was like, 
if you didn't break, it was like, then you weren't wheeling hard enough. Right. But I, th- I think times have changed on that. I remember when I was at the Badlands, uh, the guys from Brannock used to come down there and wheel Stan and, uh, well, Stan, uh, his son and, and Brandon. Yeah. And, uh, Roscoe. Oh man. Roscoe. Yeah. That's another, so no, that's another, another guy that went way, way yeah. too soon. But those three used to come down and go wheeling for the weekend all the time. And basically what you're talking about, people coming down, you know, breaking their stuff. And I remember times where those three would come down and like, we'd be out wheeling Friday evening and like two of the three are broken, like already, you know what I mean? But yeah, those guys were, they were a blast to go wheeling with, which, you know, it's like something that kind of happened with ultra four racing is a lot of us have gotten involved in ultra four racing that used to go trail wheeling. And now it's like, you don't even have a car you can go trail with trail wheeling with anymore. You know what I mean? Cause it's, if anyone does, it, it tends to be a UTV if they do, yeah, that's right. an, if they do. Yeah. And it's funny how ultra four evolved. It was originally, you know, like 2009, 2010 ultra four was like, I've got this car that I can race at King of the Hammers. Then on the weekends, I can go trail wheeling with my buddies. And, and no, it's that's not a pipe even, dream. Such a pipe dream. Well, you could, but you, you know, it ain't like that now. No, that, that car is to, that car is together and in one piece on race day only. Right. <laughs> Other than that, it's a part. That was one of the, the biggest differences between ultra four racing and rock crawling competitive rock crawling is when you get good at rock crawling and you're going out and competing, you don't typically break stuff on your car. You, you hardly roll them. And there's just not much work that is required to keep you going throughout the season. And ironically, the better you get in rock crawling, the, the cheaper, cheaper it is. is. Right. Yeah. And in ultra four racing, that is not true at all. Uh, um, it has an exponential ramp rate to it. Right. And the other thing too, is like the better you get in rock crawling, the less you have to work on your car in an ultra four racing it's kind of like the better you get, the more you better be working on your car. To, That's right. To stay at the top. We skipped a piece about one of the products that you have that really, I know for what I see come out of your shop, it literally, you probably must have a guy dedicated to it solely. And it may be even you, which means you have your third job. The Jesse Haynes portals, your portal axle business. Yeah. What's going on there? That's something, you know, I wouldn't have wouldn't have anticipated that it's blown up the way it has. So going to Australia and competing, uh, I think 2015, I think is the first year that I went to Australia to compete. There's a ton of guys there that are running portals and understandably like the courses that they run at some of the events, portals are a huge advantage where I feel like a lot of the places we go here, it's not a huge advantage to have portals. It's always an advantage, but portals never really caught on really big in the United States because I think it was just the fact that, you know, the, the commonly available stuff like a Unimog axle, it's just not that practical to throw in a car. Like the diff offset and the pinion length and how big and heavy they are. And then on top of that, they're not crazy strong right out of the box. And so I don't know, portals kind of got a bad name, especially like in the early days of rock crawling, 
people couldn't package Unimog axles very well. And then people started using these Volvo axles, Volvo 303 portals, which are really cool. In some ways, they're like a Toyota type housing and diff, but they don't turn very sharp and they're light too. Yeah. But they didn't hold up very well. People were breaking, breaking the gears and breaking the portal cases. And it didn't, it took only a couple of years before everyone said, no, screw that. We're not running those. And so, you know, it was for like from 2004 until 2016, portals were just not really a thing for competitive comp buggies. But so you got in the business strapping the HMM WV military yeah. Humvee cases on the end of a, a standard axle versus on a Humvee, yeah. they're you know, they're IFS IRS. Yeah. Yeah. So although you know, Unimog axles aren't super easy to locate in the United States. The Hummer stuff is a little easier to find. You just got to find the right source to, to get the stuff. But many years ago, probably like 03, Stazworks and a couple other places tried to build Hummer portal stuff. And at the time, no one made an aftermarket CV and people didn't know how to build the inner shafts correctly. And there's just a few other things that I don't think they ever sold that many sets and they didn't really work out great because there wasn't a lot of time that went into, you know, R and D and, and making the stuff work. You know, a few guys in Australia started using Hummer portals. And so I don't know, I just came up with, uh, came up with something that would work and it was practical you know over the past 15 years everyone 15 years ago was using axles that were junkyard stuff for the most part dana 60s or or whatever and now i mean it's extremely common for people to buy stuff like spider tracks outers and build their own housings and um, or trail gear knuckles. And for me, I was able to basically build an outer assembly where someone can buy the portal with the steering arm and the brakes and everything on it. And then an inner C that you can just put on a three and a half inch tube housing. And we've sold a ton of them and it's been, you know, four years basically of selling them. They've changed. (laughs) They've evolved. There's hardly a part that we started with that hasn't changed a little bit since the first set you know it's and it's all those little refinements that have made it a really good product you know for a guy that maybe got a set of the stuff the first year versus the stuff that we have now i mean although it might look the same there's just small changes that are a drastic difference in the reliability and the quality of everything that, that was one of the things that you came out with that you know we talked about it even in passing a little bit because i mess around with uh government hummers on a regular basis i've got i still have a something of a stockpile of uh full trucks myself uh and you have asking you know if i had a line on uh on hubs and man i don't and so i'm really impressed right. with your your ability to be, even be able to find them i'm sitting here kind of somewhat in that business on the side and i don't come across them at all and what you're doing with them is uh is pretty awesome so that the fact that that's been you're able to tool that up and what that's done for off-road crawling and packaging and making it easier for the consumer to fit portals uh portals that are dependable underneath their uh their their cars is um that's impressing yeah well racing them at king of the hammers is a, obviously that's a good test. I mean, we've got them 
in the Rocksor, and it's, I mean, it's only on 35-inch tires, but it's not light. I mean, it's, you know, race-ready with a couple people in it. I don't know. You're looking at, like, 4,800 pounds or something, probably. It's race-ready. It's just just under 44, like, legitimate race-ready, not, like, cheating the rules race-ready. But So, I mean, it's a, it's a heavy rig to go beat the crap out of for whatever the race is, 150 miles, and uh, it felt pretty good. I mean, looking at the thing when you're done, I mean, there are zero issues and no issues with the portals, nothing leaking. Yeah, that's badass. It's a reliable setup. And the thing that I don't like about Ultra 4 Racing is having to work on your car all the time and do a ton of work to it. And really, like, since we put since we put the rear axle shafts in before King of the Hammers the first year, like, the rear hubs have not come apart once like i haven't i probably won't even pull it apart before king of the hammers next year because <laughs> I, I think it's reliable enough that i'm not worried about it and same with you know the front end like i don't want to have to work on that stuff and i think it's solid so well what's next you're you're fixing to move in the next uh two weeks you guys are moving and you're gonna move shops move digs all that so uh you got a little bit of time to get moved get reset up get back in production what's next after that uh, well, I can tell you that I'm not very excited about moving. This is like the first time moving as a real adult. I bought my house that I'm in now 10 years ago and the amount of stuff that I've accumulated since then is, and we didn't even talk about, it. yeah. I mean, in that time you've gotten married, you've, you've got a three-year-old daughter, a one-year-old son. Yeah. Yeah. Growing up adult adulting. Yeah. I mean, it happens pretty quick. Uh, for many years, I was just, I don't know, you know, I was so focused on my career that anything like that, just, it was on the back burner, um, wasn't a priority. That's for sure. Then it all, you know, it all happens at once. You find the right girl and, and it happens fast. Out right? good and yeah. So yeah. And then get married and have some kids and it's, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a change for sure, but you know, it, it's hard to understand what it's like having kids until you have kids and everyone tells you, Oh man, it's awesome having kids. You're like, I don't know. It doesn't look that awesome, but <laughs> then you, then you have them and you go, yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah. It's but. pretty cool. Well, Jesse, congratulations on your 4,600 win here at, at the hammers, man. Congratulations on uh, the success of your business. Congratulations on overcoming COVID, um, being on the backside of it. You were the first person that I personally knew that uh, came forward and said, you know, the, the doctor, everything I that is wrong with me, the doctors all say that I that I have it and that you've recovered from it. Um, and thank you for supporting the talent. Thank, thanks for coming on. Thanks for spending a bunch of time with me tonight. Yeah, no problem. It's fun. Hopefully, uh, hopefully people like listening to it. I know it's. You know, the episodes, uh, I still need to get caught up on a couple of them, but it's fun listening to them. You know, some people you want to hear their interviews a little more than others. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So hopefully, hopefully people want to listen to all this. A lot of people have asked for me to have you on. Absolutely. So hopefully they can glean some nuggets from it. You know, little tidbits of information, like how, how you've been successful, how your stuff works, or if they want to know how to really be successful, come buy a chassis from you. Right. Well, we're right now. I'm working on working on developing a two seat production chassis. You know what I'm trying to do is develop more of like an extreme 
extreme trail wheeling rig, uh, something that's designed to fit portals and designed for rear steer and everything. And it'll be a couple months probably before it's. Well, I look forward to it. Ready available, but all right, man. Well, we'll catch you later, Jesse. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. All Good right, we are out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make, as usual. I really have to thank my uh, my three partners on this. Custom Splice, those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at uh, customsplice.com. Give them a call. Machining, oh my gosh. Brandon Machine, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If, if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company there in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this, uh, this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with springs. And then the parent company, Mass Motorsports Engines, Man, they have, uh, they have engines unlocked, hand-built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.